Hey everybody, welcome to the Inspire Podcast. This is Matt. And this is Brad. We are the pastors of Inspire Church in Westfield, Indiana. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening around here, be sure to subscribe to our text updates by texting the keyword INSPIRE. That's N-S-P-I-R-E to 317-451-4111. We hope the following message inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. going to be a little bit of a unique message, and so therefore I want to set this up. Um, We're in this series uh, called Won't You Be My Neighbor, where we're exploring kind of the faith story that we find through the life of Fred Rogers. Each week we've been kind of like tackling some of these different issues, um, but as we were talking about what it means to be a neighbor in our neighborhoods, and, and we use that kind of in a broader sense. It's not just the houses that are biased, but our neighborhood are the people that are around us, the ones we work with, our family, our extended family and friends. Uh, what does it mean to be a neighbor within our community? And Fred Rogers was brilliant and forward-thinking in so many ways, and especially in the area of race relations. As we mentioned before, in 1968, in the very first year of his broadcast, he took the very bold move of, uh, first of all, casting Francois Clemens as, uh, as Officer Clemens on the show, who is the first recurring African-American character on a children's show. And while other communities around the United States were facing issues with integration uh, and were not allowing African-Americans to, to swim in the same pools, and there was all this racial divide, uh, Fred Rogers had this very powerful scene where he had Officer Clemens sit with him, soak his feet in the pool, and, uh, and, and then dry off each other's feet, basically sending a powerful message to kids that it is so important to come together and to not allow things to divide us. As a matter of fact, Fred Rogers, he said this. He's like, it's not so much what we have in this life that matters. It's what we do with what we have. And this morning it would be very Fred Rogers of us to tackle a subject that is extremely controversial, and it's one that probably when I say the title of this talk, you are going to react to, and you're going to carry, you're going to conjure up some preconceived ideas in your head. So when I say the phrase, when I say the two words, white privilege, white privilege, you automatically start thinking of something. You start going to a place politically and socially. And for many of you, this is something that brings up some very deep or emotional issues, right? Most of us, I would say, hopefully all of us in this room would would say, hey, I'm I'm not a racist person. I, I love people of all races and skin tones. And it's easy to use that on the surface by saying that we're past the issues that have plagued our nation for a couple of hundred years. However, there are still some very deep and underlying things that probably you and I overlook by virtue of the privilege that we are the recipients of. And privilege is something that is not earned. As a matter of fact, you may not even realize you have it unless it is pointed out to you. Rather than trying to do this talk ourselves, and we considered whether I should do this talk uh, in person, uh, Doug Talley, who is connected with a network of churches that we're connected with there, he's an Indiana Ministries state pastor, gave a talk 
back in October, and uh, I've listened to this talk two or three times now, and I think this is the perfect start to a conversation. And I say start because we're going to play this talk in its entirety this morning. It's kind of a TED-style talk. We're going to play this, and we're going to talk about it briefly afterwards, and then we're going to put a pin in this topic. And then next year, in 2020, we're going to revisit this multiple times because this is something that probably we as a church could do very well at leading the way in changing our hearts and allowing God to help us see things different. So, as Fred Rogers would do today, I think he would be leaning right into the conversation. He would be approaching these difficult subjects head on. And so that's what we want to do. So Doug Kelly is going to share this talk. I would ask that you give your attention to it. I would especially ask that you keep an open mind, as open of a mind as you can, and try to set aside any preconceived ideas you have about this subject and see maybe where you can be grown and stretched through this conversation. So take a look at the screens and uh, we'll do this talk in its entirety. I'll come back up and kind of wrap us up. Won't you please, won't you please, please won't you be my neighbor? I grew up fortunate, or as people down south say, I grew up blessed. My mom and dad are both from rural Alabama. My mom's dad was a farmer. My dad's dad was a manual laborer at a local cotton mill. Neither of my grandfathers had very much education. But they knew how to work hard, and they had lots and lots of integrity. Though none of my grandparents ever even thought about going to college, both of my parents sought to improve themselves by attending Auburn University, War Eagle, where they met and actually married. Basically, my first eight years were spent in small town, Alabama. My mother was a home ec teacher, my dad was a math and English teacher, and then he became a principal. Pretty much everyone who worked at their schools was white. In fact, pretty much everyone in town was white. At least the part of town I grew up in. When I was eight, we moved to a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia, and Dad became principal of a somewhat elite high school adjacent to the Emory University campus. Integration was being implemented, but still, the high school that I went to was almost completely white. I was somewhat aware of racial tensions in the South because this was the 60s. They were on the evening news every evening but it really didn't affect my life. Fast forward to April 2013. I'm sitting in an organizational development class about organizational consulting. 
And the morning's topic was introduced by one of the instructors with these words. Every morning when I wake up, I'm aware that I'm an African-American female. Her words struck me as insanely weird. Honestly, I have never woken up a single morning of the day and thought to myself, I am a white male. It never crossed my conscious mind. I knew I was white. And I knew I was male. But I never thought about how those two realities impacted my life or my world. Being white was, well, to me it was normal. You know, when you're describing someone to somebody else, if they're not white, we tend to describe with, oh, you know Mike Thigpen. He's the black guy with the really great smile. But when you're referring to somebody who's white, you never say, oh, Doug Talley, he's the white guy who lost his hair a long time ago. And what I discovered we're saying from all of that is that white is the norm, so you don't have to identify it. Therefore, everything else is the exception to the norm. Every other skin color is not normal. Every other skin color is abnormal. I've been learning that being white means that I can ignore that I'm white. But people of color cannot ignore their skin color because it impacts every single day of their lives. Females cannot ignore their gender, but I can because I'm male. And it's a male-dominated culture. But they can't. It impacts every day of their lives. Being white tends to delude us white people into being totally unaware of how our whiteness benefits us over people of color. Since we're the ones getting the benefit, we're not aware of it. And we're also not very motivated to change it. The instructor continued by helping us understand what it meant to be African-American in a white-dominated country and what it meant to be female in a male-dominated country. During her talk, I, I remember thinking to myself, where have I been all my life? How could I be so clueless about something that should be more obvious to me? Hosea spoke some words that actually quoting God in the book of Hosea. And it doesn't have to do with race per se, 
but I think it's very relevant. This is really God speaking, Hosea 6.4. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. I think we could even do some interpretation. My people are destroyed for lack of awareness. My people are destroyed for a failure to pay attention to the reality going on around them. Until that class in April 2013, I was trying to be colorblind. I thought the solution to the race issue was treat everybody with equal respect while ignoring skin color. But the instructor helped me understand you cannot ignore skin color because skin color impacts people every day of their lives. And the world that we live in has privileges and penalties that are attached purely to the color of an individual's skin. As she said these things, something in my spirit said they're true, but I've been living as though they weren't. I had been telling myself that I I was just blessed. The instructor had all of us take a survey about privilege in order to see where we fell on a privilege hierarchy. And there were only 15 items on the survey. And they covered things like race, skin color, gender, nationality, religion, socioeconomic class, education. The highest score that anybody could possibly get on this survey was 15. But honestly, a person of color the very highest they could probably get was around 12. My score totaled 15. As we talked about our scores in class, I realized that no one was more privileged than I was. No one Even coming from family, pretty humble beginnings, no one in the class was more privileged than I was. Imagine my surprise when I discovered that I was the poster child of unearned white privilege. Until that moment, I had believed the myth that the playing field in America was all level, regardless of your skin color. I had believed that everyone could improve themselves and get ahead merely by working hard. And you know, there, there is a little bit, very limited truth to that idea of working hard. But the playing field, it's anything but level. For this guy who scored 15 of 15 on the privilege scale, my blessed life was actually filled with lots of advantages that gave me a head start in the race of life, especially 
over people of color. Oh, I still had to work hard. But what I discovered was I was running the race of life downhill while people of color were running it uphill. And often being tripped by me and other people as they ran. White privilege is the reality that those with white skin receive an array of benefits and advantages not shared by people of color. It doesn't mean that whites have not had hard times. It does not mean that whites have not worked hard. It means that the systems in our society cater to those of us who are white people and disadvantage or penalize people simply because of the color of their skin. I benefit because several hundreds of years ago, people who had white skin intentionally chose to set up a culture that favored white skin. So the privilege that I have was totally unearned. It was simply put into place a couple of hundred years before I was born. But I certainly got to benefit from it. Did you know that the concept of race is relatively recent? It's not something that's been around since Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's not even something that's been around for a thousand years. An article in Anthropology Newsletter says that race developed as a distinct concept with the emergence of African slavery. Now, slavery was not a new idea. We know even back in biblical times, there were slaves. But you see, back then, slaves were people who were unfortunate enough to be on the losing side of a war. And never did the masters think they were superior to the slaves. The slaves simply lost the war, and so they had to engage in servitude, at least for a period of time, kind of as a punishment for losing the war. But when people began to kidnap Africans to sell, race was created as a way to justify making Africans slaves. Black-skinned people were dehumanized and deemed to be inferior in order to ease white people's consciences so they could be exploited as extremely cheap labor. In the early 1600s, white indentured servants came from Western Europe to the United States. And they were poor people. They couldn't afford a boat ticket, so someone paid their way in exchange for seven years of service. At the same time, African slavery was introduced. 
The poor whites who were indentured servants and the African slaves all had something in common. Both were mistreated by the white people who had power and authority and ran the country. And so they decided to protest their mistreatment. And there were uprisings, except they were not successful in the uprisings. However, the uprisings changed the social structure of what became the United States. Prior to African slaves being imported to the U.S., there were two tiers of the social structure. There were the whites who had power and land and money, and there were the poor whites who didn't have any of those things. But after the attempts at uprisings, an extra tier was created in the social structure. And do you know where that tier was? The very bottom, beneath the poor whites. That's where the African slaves were placed. And the message was very clear to poor whites. Your life is hard, but at least you're not black. That was the message that pervaded what became the United States. The message to poor whites that, yes, your life is hard, and yes, you don't have much, but you are in a better place than blacks. And so racism and white privilege were born. But Doug, wasn't wasn't everyone who lived in what became the United States created equal? and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among them were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Didn't that apply to all people? No, it did not. It only applied to the people who met the qualifications of being a citizen. In other words, it only applied to people who scored 15 on the privilege scale. And merely by virtue of their skin color, if for no other reason, no African-American or Hispanic or someone from another country that had darker skin color could qualify as a citizen. Don't think for a minute that white privilege was an accident. It was actually a sinister plan. It was intentionally constructed over several hundred years by power-holding whites, acting on behalf of all white people, even white people who weren't born yet. The system is not based on each individual white person's intent to harm, but it's based on the white race's determination to get what our white ancestors felt like we were entitled to. So somewhere 400 years ago, white people decided that they were a superior race. Sounds a bit like 
the early 1900s in Nazi Germany. But somewhere 400 years ago, whites in Western Europe and the United States decided that they were the supreme race. So they put in place a system that meant that whites were in charge and all the systems, all the institutions were built around that. And people who are not white were placed at a distinct disadvantage. But Doug, that was, that was 250 years ago. The Civil War changed all that. Now granted, following the Civil War, the slavery system collapsed. But the system itself never changed. It was just redefined. The rules remained the same. Black people struggled after slavery to find homes, jobs. Many died from starvation and disease. And then for the next 100 years, Jim Crow laws replaced slavery with one primary objective, to keep, quote, blacks in their place, unquote. And that three-tier social structure tells us what their place was regarded to be by white people in general. At the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. Since whites ran the government, the courts, and law enforcement, this racial caste system was actually pretty easy to maintain. Though we may be told today that the playing field is level, regardless of a person's skin, it's still not there's still a significant slope on the field. Racism is a power that puts black people, brown-skinned people, anyone who's not white, at a significant disadvantage. It doesn't make it impossible for them to succeed in life, but they sure have to work a whole lot harder and overcome a whole lot more obstacles to succeed. Do you ever stop and think about what are the things we do to improve our lot in life? Now, one of them is education. Did you know that black students are six times more likely than white students to attend a high-poverty school whose funding is very limited, thus negatively impacting a black student's education? In 2015, a research scientist named David Mosinskis studied 500 school districts in Pennsylvania, not the Deep South, but in Pennsylvania, and found that regardless of the district's income, the more black students a school had, the less money that school received. When white children get a better education than black children, that's a huge advantage. The GI Bill was created following World War II to help vets go to college. 
black vets were not told they couldn't apply for it. However, very few of the one million black veterans were able to benefit from it. Another white advantage has been the accumulation of wealth. In 2014, the Pew Research Center reported that the median net worth of a white household was $141,900. The median net worth of a Hispanic household was $13,700. And the median net worth of a black family was $11,000. Do you know the primary way that people accumulate wealth and pass it along to subsequent generations? It's through home ownership. I mean, even your grandparents. They may not have had an elaborate house, but the chances are, if you're white, when they passed away, they left some land, some farmland, or some house of some value to your parents, which in turn would have been passed on to you possibly, as some form of an inheritance. The Federal Housing Administration was created in 1934 when the housing industry had crashed. Guidelines were established that allowed lenders, listen to this, that allowed lenders to take into account the color of a person's skin and even declined them a home loan because they weren't white. Loopholes in the law allowed that to happen. The system was called redlining, and it existed for over 30 years. And there are still some traces of it in the system. Between 1934, when the FHA, Federal Housing Administration, was established, and 1962, the federal government underwrote 120 billion dollars in new housing, less than 2% of that went to people of color. So how do you accumulate wealth when the system is against you? Employment is another way to improve one's life. Yet according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, unemployment among black people is nearly two times that as whites, even when they have equivalent resumes even when they have equivalent educations. Income. It sounds logical that a black man with the same degree as a white man would earn the same paycheck for the same job. Right? The Economic Policy Institute discovered that black men with 11 to 20 years of experience would earn 25% less than their white counterparts. And do you know that gap is actually larger now than it was 40 years ago? Last week I attended a workshop on undoing racism. An African-American woman sitting next to me who had her PhD shared with the group that there are others in her department who are working on their PhD, though she finished hers 20 years ago, and they make up to 25% more than she does for doing the same job that she does. Income disparity continues. And then there's credit. Now, we may not like borrowing money, but there's some things you just can't purchase in life without borrowing money, unless you get a huge inheritance. 
Did you know that Hispanic and black people are more likely to pay, have been more likely to pay higher interest rates? Hispanics and black people have been more likely to pay higher interest rates than white people. Loopholes allowed lenders to adjust rates in a way that rewarded white people. So it's easier for a white to attend a better school, accumulate wealth, find a job, earn more money, and get better credit. Just because we're white. Does that sound like white privilege to you? Well, there's one area where blacks have the advantage. But it's not the right kind of advantage. It's in the area of being incarcerated. Though blacks and whites use drugs at a similar rate, black people are imprisoned for drug charges at almost six times the rates of whites. Though African Americans and Hispanics make up approximately 30% of the population, over 55% of the prison population is made up of blacks and Hispanics. Now in the United States, whites have unearned advantages over people of other skin colors. It results in greater access to resources and opportunities for white people. It is an unearned white privilege. Well, if I'm white, what can I do about it? Let me give you some action steps. One, become more informed. Educate yourself on racism and the history of racism. People of color cannot do all the work in educating us on racism. It's time us white people start getting some education on our own so that we better understand the racial climate, so that we better understand the institutions and the systems that perpetuate racism. Because we can't begin to address them if we're not informed. The second thing is to listen. Talk to people of color. Listen to their experiences. Now, don't be surprised if some are reluctant to share because white people have been exploiting and taking advantage of black people for years and years. And so they may think you're asking questions in order to get an advantage to leverage. But if you're really genuine and you're willing to listen, you just might learn some things. A third is to be humble. Recognize that it's possible if you're white, that where you are in life just might have been aided by you being white. I'm not saying you haven't worked hard. I'm saying you enjoy a lot of advantages if you're white that mean you're not the only awesome person in the room. And if you're humble and vulnerable, just might be some things you learn that you've been oblivious to in the past. A fourth thing is to support racial justice and oppose the systems that perpetuate racism. You know, it's too easy for us white people to look the other way when there's social injustice because it doesn't seem to really affect us. But do you realize every time we white people look the other way, it hardens our heart just a little bit more? 
and it deeply hurts someone of color who's deeply loved by God, and it hurts them yet again. Part of the Great Commission is fighting against inequality. If we are truly a disciple of Jesus and we are involved in Jesus' mission, then we can't just sit back and say, that's too bad, but it doesn't affect me. It does. Well, this is a, uh, a different topic than what we have addressed here at Inspire, and it's not quite the, uh, the feel-good, warm and fuzzy kind of a message that you may come to expect here, but sometimes it's good to stretch ourselves out of our comfort zone. What I'm challenging you to move past is this idea of color blindness, which because I think it's probably safe to say that, that uh, nobody in here would willingly say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a racist. But we probably have thought being colorblind is something that is a good thing, where researchers have come to identify colorblindness as a learned behavior that we tend to adopt to pretend that we don't notice something that is all around us. Privilege is something that if you and I have it, we would be completely blind to. My friend and author John Pavlovitz says, privilege is like a stain on the back of your shirt. If you have it, you can't see it and you need a good person to tell you. The reason this is a topic that we want to address is because if we are going to be followers of Christ, in our neighborhoods, we have to recognize that there are still issues of systemic racial injustice in our country, contrary to the fact that a lot of people think that those things are long gone. And it's important to note for the purpose of this conversation on what white privilege is not. Doug said this, but I want to clarify this. White privilege is not the assumption that everything that we have as white people is unearned or undeserved. Most, if not all of you, worked very hard for the jobs and the homes and the things that you have. And it's not a conversation that says you don't deserve that or you didn't work hard to earn that. All right? White privilege is acknowledging that if we were born whites, we were the recipients, whether we realize it or not, of privilege advantage that was separate from our level of income or effort. For that purpose, the uh, author, Francis Kendall, he describes it this way, and this is probably a good working definition. He says, uh, white privilege is having greater access to power and resources than people of color in the same situation do. Having greater access to power and resources than people of color in the same situation do. And this is what in social science is kind of known as the power of accumulated power. Even though the systems that perpetuated racism and injustice were a couple hundred years in our past, that doesn't mean that the ripple effect doesn't still follow through today. Doesn't mean that there are not still things in our very recent past or our very current present that don't continue to sustain some of the same injustice. 
we believe, Matt and I, in, in talking about this topic, felt that this was an important part of a conversation because we cannot have a true neighborhood if it is not fully represented. You don't have to look very hard at our church to recognize that it is predominantly and mostly the same skin tones. That's not by choice, and unfortunately, that reflects a lot of the demographics of where we live. But that doesn't mean that we cannot individually take intentional steps to stretch ourselves out of our current siloed existence and find ways of ending some of the systemic injustice. As a matter of fact, this is what Jesus would do if he were here. Because Jesus pushed all kinds of hot button topics when he walked this earth. He talked about injustices and he reached out to those who were marginalized and excluded from the conversation. And Jesus would be leaning right into this conversation today and I feel that we owe it to ourselves to do that same thing. To help you take these next steps, here's a couple of next steps. Number one, maybe acknowledge that, you know, you didn't, it's okay to acknowledge, I I didn't like that topic. I may have even disagreed with some of those things. If so, lean into the conversation. Start by educating yourselves. We have put together a list of resources, most of which I have personally read myself, that's on our podcast page, specifically tied to this message. So this video message is going to be on our podcast page, and you can go to inspire.church forward slash neighbor. Underneath this video is a list of video clips, podcast episodes, online articles, and books. Um, If you want to start out small, there are a couple of good podcast episodes that you can listen to that are fairly um, compact. Maybe if you're traveling over Thanksgiving. One is by Tanishi Coates. He wrote an article for The Atlantic called The Case for Reparations. And again, reparations is a very loaded word that causes some people to immediately react with a political pushback. The point of that article is not the reparations, actually, but in setting the case for it and helping you to identify from an African-American person's perspective what was the thing that has led to this conversation. Tanishi Coates also wrote this fantastic book called Between the World and Me. This is a very short and easy read. Um, These are two very accessible next steps as we begin to educate ourselves. There's also an episode, podcast episode um, by the liturgist called Black and White Racism in America. I can still remember, this was about maybe six years ago, that Lisa and I were on our way to a vacation in South Carolina, and we happened to land upon this podcast episode, and we were driving, and I remember my whole worldview turning upside down. You know how sometimes when you listen to something, like lights start going off in your head, and you start thinking, where was I up until now? How was I so blind to this? I had a conversation with somebody after the first service. Um, I'm a big fan of the TV show Watchmen. uh, It's on HBO right now. They started this season with what a lot of people imagined to be a fictional representation of something that a lot of white people were quite surprised that happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, the Tulsa, Oklahoma Massacre. And I won't even go into that. Just Google the Tulsa, Oklahoma Massacre that happened the Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the largest... Uh, sustained racial violence in our country's history um, post-slavery, and it's something that most of us were not even aware of. So the reality is that there's a lot of stuff we can do to educate ourselves on this topic. Um, the second thing to do would be, as Doug said, to, to lean into relationships with people of color. 
but maybe don't just start right out by saying, hey, what is it, be li- what is it like to be a person of color? And perhaps deepen the relationship and express to them your desire to learn and grow because there is a very real issue of fatigue within the communities of people of color for having to explain something over and over and over to the point where they would rather just not even engage in the conversation. I can tell you that in some of our personal friend circles, the relationships that my wife and I have, as we have developed relationships where we were vulnerable enough to express to them that we wanted to listen, the stories that were relayed back to us are frankly shocking as to what degree of prejudice still exists today, but again, we're blind to it because it's just not a part of our daily existence. As Doug started out that talk, rarely do I, if ever, wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, I am a white male. And yet that is my reality, whether I recognize it or not. So as you begin to educate yourself, lean into those relationships and find out some ways that you can grow. And just keep an open mind and ask, what can I do to be Christ to everyone in my neighborhood? And to recognize that maybe we as the church, maybe we as followers of Christ have a lot to grow in this area and perhaps it starts with you. All right, so next steps would be to further educate yourself. Inspired.church forward slash neighbor is a good next step. There's plenty of good resources, some good podcasts and episodes you can listen to. Specifically, that article, The Case for Reparations, there's an audio version of that article that is read by the author that you can, we've linked to. There's a SoundCloud player on, the, on that page. So you can listen to it right there. That's something you can listen to in the car as you're traveling to for your Thanksgiving plans. Again, I want to acknowledge that this is maybe not the, the feel-good pre-Christmas holiday season topic, but we felt it was important to, to start this conversation. And it is the beginning of a conversation, one that we want to come back to next year as we continue to dive a little bit deeper. So as you leave today, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would learn to be like Christ, that you would intentionally lean into these things that maybe stretch you past where you are currently. And there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 58 that I would hope and pray is true for all of us, and this would be a prayer challenge that you and I would be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths leading home. May that be true of us. May you and I learn to repair what has been broken over several hundred years of injustice, of pain, of hurts that have been caused, maybe that you and I were not personally responsible for, but we inherited the situation that we have right now. So may we be people like Christ who lean into these tough conversations and repair and restore, that we would learn to see God's kingdom come. And may Christ's prayer with his disciples be our prayer as well. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's kingdom is one that blends together all races, all cultures, that sees restoration as its central mission. So as you leave, go in grace and peace. We hope that you have a wonderful, relaxing, and enjoyable Thanksgiving uh, meal or meals with your family and friends this week. And we will uh, see you all next week. 
Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Westfield area, we'd love to see you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions and more information about our services and family ministries, check out our Facebook page or visit us online at www.inspire.church.